From Brandeis University, welcome to Recall This Book, where we assemble scholars and writers from different disciplines to make sense of contemporary issues, problems, and events. I'm John Plotz, and our RTB virtual guest today is the great novelist Ben Fountain. Uh, he's most recently the author of a 2018 collection of essays, Beautiful Country, Burn Again. A lot of those, I first saw a lot of those in The Guardian. Um, but he's also the recipient of a Penn Hemingway Award for Brief Encounters with Che Guevara, uh, Stories of 2007, and the National Book Critics Circle Award for Fiction for his debut novel, and this is how I first came to know his, his wonderful fiction, Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk from 2012. And it was also made into a movie, uh, kind of a weird movie, I, I thought, by, uh, by Ang Lee. Uh, ben, thank you so much for being here. Uh, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Great. So um, this is another installment in our Books in Dark Times series, which asks what books we turn to for guidance, sustenance, and encouragement at moments like this. So as you can probably guess from the title, it takes its inspiration from Hannah Arendt's Men in Dark Times. And one of the things that book argues is, quote, that even in the darkest of times, we have the right to accept expect some illumination and that such illumination may well come less from theories and concepts than from the uncertain flickering and often weak light that some men and women in their lives and their works, so we're thinking about books especially, will kindle under almost all circumstances and shed over the time span that was given them on earth. So the questions that I'm going to start asking Ben today are the same ones that apply to you, dear listeners. We want to know what kind of works are sustaining you, what is engaging you, what is irking or prodding you to action at this strange and dark time. So um, Ben, one of, the, one of the things that a lot of these conversations have been about have been about that question of whether what you want in the world building of the books that you turn to, is it the capacity to just be in that other space for a while or it sometimes seems like what people want is a capacity to recognize their own world in that book, you know, so that they could either be a this worldly or a that worldly experience. I, I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I think there is, you know, the old Venn diagram overlap mm -hmm. in there. Um, and to the extent that you do disappear into the story, eventually you come out. Um, but if the experience of the story, that particular part of the story has been powerful enough, it's going to stay with you. Can I say it's, in, it's so interesting for me to talk to you because my formation, because of, you know, like my own PhD work was so much through British writers. And so when you and I are talking, I always notice that you're such an, your formation is such American writers. Like you really, you think about our country. Um, is that generally true or is that just, yeah. Yeah, um, I mean, I was a I was a literature major at University of North Carolina, and um, and I was so lucky. I had great professors, and um, and I made it a point to try to take courses in things that I figured I probably wouldn't read otherwise. Like, I figured I probably wouldn't read John Dryden. And yeah, um, I had to read him for a class, yeah. Probably wouldn't read, you know, many of the Victorian poets. And um, I mean, there are lots of things that I felt like I'm probably not going to read this on my own. And yeah. so I went out of my way to 
study those writers. And I ended up doing my honors thesis on Alan Tate. Oh, wow. Yeah. You know, the fugitive poet and novelist. Um, and I did a year's worth of war on Ezra Pound, you know, obviously, you know, another American. But I feel like I, you know, I have a decent undergraduate level grounding yeah. in British literature. And so, I mean, it's there. It's there, but but I find what what um when I follow my head and my heart, yeah, it, it usually focuses on a. And that was really my question. It wasn't. I didn't mean it. I, it wasn't meant to be a like. Let's compare our book list question. Oh, it was no. like, yeah, okay. because I think I'm coming. You know, now in my fifties, for me, like people like Mark Twain and Willa Cather are coming alive, and science fiction too, in a way they hadn't before. So I'm. Yeah, when I follow my heart now, I'm going more towards American writers. And I was sort of wondering, yeah, had, had, it sounds like it's kind of always been the case for you that your heart has always been somewhere in, America, in the American canon. Well, yeah, you know, when, um, I mean, when I started writing, uh, believe me, I did not have a plan. I mean, I practiced law for five years and, and then quit cold turkey and started writing. But as the years have gone by, I've found that's that's where my instincts lead me. Mm-hmm. Often it's it you know the stories are dealing with Americans um, who abroad or who have had formative experiences abroad, yeah. and um, they might still be overseas or they maybe they've come home. Yeah. But um, but uh, yeah, I, I mean. So Joan Didion is she interesting to you? Oh my God. She is, she is the master. She's amazing, isn't she? Yeah. I, I, I think um, she's one of the great American writers. Yeah. And uh, a book of hers I've been thinking about, and this was even before I tried to watch the, um, the, the movie that was made of it, is, is The Last Thing He Wanted. Oh, I don't know it. I've never read it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah they, recently a movie was released. It was either Netflix or Amazon or... HBO, they they adapted it in for film, not very successfully, uh-huh. but I think the last thing he wanted is is a great American novel, yeah. and and it deals. I mean, the context is the dirty wars in Central America oh, in the nineteen yeah. and and American involvement in those, right. and, and it's just a masterpiece of tone and mood and um, character and uh, this this really profound interiority of the two main characters that is, that is processing these larger macro geopolitical forces. And it's a hard thing to do. She does it very well. Yeah. Well, I, cause I was thinking the book I know that's like that is democracy, which is obviously about the far East, not, not central America, but, but I like, I mean, it really reminded me of Conrad. And I think that point I agree with that it's interiority all the way down, but only when you go into the interiors, what you find is like these macroscopic struggles. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's the interior life and then the public life, the external life, the, the social life, but they're all bound up together. Yeah. And uh, there's there's obviously no clear you know, dividing line. You know, it was um, around 2004 when, when George W. Bush got elected. I won't say he got reelected. Um, but when he got elected, 
I, and I, I had, I came to the realization I don't understand my country. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so I started consciously seeking out writers who had gone straight at the problem, the mystery of, of what is America. Yeah. And Joan Didion was very high on that list. Yeah, Marilyn Robinson. Hmm? Marilyn Robinson. Absolutely. Um, let's see. the The first were Joan Didion, Norman Mailer. Norman Mailer. Yeah. James Baldwin. Yeah. Um, yeah. Gary, Gary Wills. Yeah. Um, you know he's done a lot of great work. Yeah. And um, and then I found my way to Marilyn Robinson. Yeah. And um, she continues to be a revelation. Um with her books of essays and then the things she's currently publishing in Harper's and the New York. Review oh, I don't know those. What is, yeah. Oh, she's wonderful. Yeah. Oh, and great. The last thing I read by her was, um, this deep dive into the Puritans and, uh, and the Puritan legacy. Oh, I have it, read a couple of those actually. Yeah. Yeah. The, and, and, um, yeah. and they're very nourishing, uh, but they go down like, um, I mean, they go down easy. Yeah. I mean, it's like she's telling stories. Yeah. Um, I, I still, I still will pick her fiction over her nonfiction any day of the week. I mean, I do. I mean, she's a great writer. I agree with you, but housekeeping still strikes me. Like when you go back that question, the way you raised it, I don't understand my country. Like what is going on, you know, inside of us. I feel like housekeeping has something, there's something there about those who stay and those who go, the way mm -hmm. that we're a country that's defined by like our tight knit communities, but also this, um, you know, you know, the, the, the emphasis on being able to light out for the territories at the same time. And, and, and that that makes you kind of disaffected and alienated, even though it makes you free too. And yeah, I, ah, she's amazing. Yes, she is. Zadie Smith has been writing great, great stuff. Um, again, in the magazines, you know, New York Review of Books and Harper's and, and um, I mean, and I mean, she is looking directly at contemporary issues. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so when I see something by her, you know, I immediately grab it. Yeah. And I think the latest thing she had in the New York Review of Books was um, a piece on Kara Walker. Oh yeah, Kara Walker. Yeah, the sugar baby. She's amazing. Yeah, is, <laughs> that is a great American artist. She scares the living piss out of me. I mean, appropriately. Yeah, I appropriately. Mean, she wouldn't be doing her job. I mean, that's that is no, her job I, is to scare you. Yes. I mean, there are huge chunks of American history that that should terrify us mm -hmm. and terrorize us and horrify us. And um, Kara Walker does it like no one I've ever seen. Well, one of the reasons I really like Arendt is her insistence that you cannot be sure that the truth will come out at any given moment. Like the, the flim flam can go on, you know, the hot air can stay in the balloon a long time, but you, you can know that it will happen. I mean, it, you know, it, and, and I, I really appreciate her. She's, she's pessimistic, but she's hopeful. You know, like she has yeah. a vision of what it takes to see the truth. And like you said, so much reality. You need so much. Yeah, the, her, her clarity of vision is really extraordinary. Yeah. She would not look away. Yeah. Um, and there is this core of, of compassion and humanity to her that, um, I mean, she reminds me of Camus. Mm -hmm. 
and James Baldwin. Yep. I mean, they do not look away. Yeah. They look with absolute clarity at the human condition. Um, but there's this human core to them that just comes through. Yeah. In, in this very, you know, heartening way. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, ultimately, reality is stronger than all of us. I mean, and we can maintain our fantasies, you know, some of us can do it longer, some not as long. You know, there are differences in scale, obviously, but but what the current president has done in American life is, is truly extraordinary. And um, like all great demagogues, he's had us under a spell or in a trance ever since he came down the escalator yeah. in 2015. And sooner or later, it will break. Yeah. There will be too much reality. Yeah. Um, but I, my gut is telling me that's not going to happen before November of 2020. Yeah. Yeah. So Ben, that's the second time you've mentioned Baldwin. And I'm glad I was, ho- I was trying to lead it back there. So that's great. Can you say more about why in 2004 or now that Baldwin seemed to provide a, an answer for you or a, a roadmap? I haven't read him systematically. And I should get those Library of America volumes down and just read them straight yeah. through. I keep meaning to do that with him. He's just, he goes so many directions though. So I, I tend to get, you know, I follow one path, like the letter to his nephew, that's one thing. And like, yeah, it's just, yeah. So it's hard yeah. to just read him straight through. Yeah. I mean, his mind is so alive yeah. and so subtle. I mean, he, he's just, he's gotta be one of the top two or three or four American writers and um came out of nowhere Mm -hmm. i mean which proves genius is everywhere you know if it's given a chance half a chance 10 percent of a chance you know i remember reading when if beale street could talk oh yeah yeah when it came out and it came out like 76 77 78 right around right and i think i was home from college and i went I mean, I've always been a book nerd and, and I would go to the public library once a week, you know, and switch out my books and it had just come out and, and it was this nice hardback and they had it, you know, on display. So I got it and I read it. And, um, and you know, the storyline is, um, gosh, I can't remember the young African-American's name. I, um, I just saw the movie, but I can't remember anybody's name. So, yeah. yeah. Um, but anyway, I mean, a cop in his neighborhood um, takes an extreme disliking to him. And it's a white cop. And, and our guy is black. Yeah. And, and basically he is, I mean, he's, he's, he takes the fall for a brutal rape that he was nowhere near. And he has an alibi for it. Yeah. And he still takes the fall for it. Um, and it all comes out of this very personal animus. And I mean, I was a white kid in the suburbs, you know, in 1977-78. And I'm reading it and it seemed like such an extreme situation. Yeah. I mean, I was wondering, does this kind of thing really happen? Right. And so for years afterwards, I walked around with that in the back of my mind and 
And every, every once in a while, a data point, I call it a data point, an anecdote would come along and say, yeah, you know, it, it would make me think, yeah, that stuff really does happen. Um, and then, of course, once we got cell phones and video, I mean, it happens all the time. I mean, it's a freaking massacre out there. Yeah. And, um, and I just remember, I mean, I carried that book around in my head for 40 years. Yeah. Fonny and Tish, by the way. Alfonso. Okay, Fonny. Yeah. I was thinking Sonny. Yeah, yeah Fonny. Yeah. But, um, I mean, you know, I didn't believe it. I didn't disbelieve it. I was suspending belief all that time. But, uh, but the facts, demonstrable facts, the proof, the evidence showed that, that Baldwin absolutely had it accurate. Yeah. Yeah, it's so interesting. It took 40 years to. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I know I'm really glad the movie came out. I um it's just funny cuz for me the the books that had this kind of revelatory force for me were um Another Room and uh Giovanni uh, Giovanni's Room and Another Life, sorry. Um yeah. which were I mean I think they were some of the first gay novels I read and I think I must have read them at the end of high school and um yeah. Yeah, I my mind was kind of blown. But can I just ask as a as a way of sort of making a turn towards home here, you, you know, as a writer yourself, do you have thoughts about, you know, what this period brings for writing, like either your own writing or the writing of others? Like, what do you think is going to come out of our present moment? Well, I'll talk about my own. That'd writing be great. For... I was hoping you would. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm working on a novel set in Haiti. Um, in the early 1990s um, that begins at the time of the first coup d'etat mm -hmm. against Jean-Bertrand Aristide mm -hmm. um, during his first, you know, round in the presidency. Mm -hmm. And um, and the coup d'etat had very significant sponsorship by the American security state, the CIA, the Defense Intelligence Agency. I mean, we were all over that coup d'etat. Um, and, uh, and what resulted was a, a military, very brutal military regime for the next three and a half years. Society was on lockdown. Um, a harsh embargo was put in place on Haiti. And um, life really became desperate materially and politically um, for those three and a half years. And I was spending a lot of time there during that time. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so I feel like writing that novel at this particular moment in time, they do have relevance to one another. I mean, societies that are on lockdown to one extent or another. And um, I mean, there are big differences, obviously, but, but, you know, just how people survive and keep themselves together in those situations. Um, is uh, I'm, I'm finding our situation, you know, not irrelevant. That's very interesting. Wow. How, how, um, how close are you to completing that novel? Uh, I better be close because my deadline's coming up. Um, <laughs> but uh, but I, I, I'm planning to turn it in this year. Oh, wow. Great. Um, uh, as for other writers, um, you're seeing stuff come out. Swanee Review has uh, they just started running a website feature called the Corona Correspondence, where hmm. 
the editor there, Adam Ross, is inviting lots of different writers to write a letter from their city. Yeah. And um, those have been nice pieces. And there's a, a new website called Chronicles of Now, hmm. where um, the editor is um, asking for short fiction ripped from the headlines. Wow. And, uh, and so, you know, just um, on a particular scale, that's, that's going on. You know, I mean, writers, they take their experiences of life and you never know how it's going to get processed yeah. and, and come back out. And I remember what Norman Mailer said right after 9-11. Yeah. He said probably 500 writers of talent were there on the ground in Manhattan that day. Yeah. And they might end up writing about it directly or they may take the substance of that experience yeah. and, and have it serve some other context, but one way or another, it will come out. Right. And I think that's true of what we're going through. Right. That's now. an interesting point. Yeah. Yeah. I heard uh, uh, George Sanders reading a letter or somebody reading a letter that he wrote to all of his students, you know, telling them, to keep a diary, to love. Did you, did you see this letter? And then at the end of it, he's like, no, he, well, he sort of tells you all the things you should be doing to process it. And he's like, of course, me, I'm just sitting at home drinking. But, you know, that is what I should be doing. I know. So, yeah. Could you imagine having George Sanders as, as your writing teacher? I cannot. Yeah. 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 He's remarkable. Um, well, Bed, thank you so much. This has been a, a great conversation. And I'll just um, say for the credits that recall this book is hosted by John Plotz and usually by Elizabeth Ferry with music by Eric Chaslow and Barbara Cassidy, sound editing by Claire Ogden, website design and social media by Kaliska Ross. We always want to hear from you and especially on the topic of books on dark times with your comments, criticisms and suggestions and simply just what you're reading. So finally, if you enjoyed today's show, please be sure to write a review or rate us on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcast. And you might want to check out our other conversations with uh, writers like Kim Stanley Robinson, as well as earlier conversations with such writers as Zadie Smith, Shishem Yu, and Samuel Delaney. So, uh, Ben, thank you very, very much. Don, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. All right. And thank you all for listening. Mm -hmm.